Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all, even if only digitally. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors at Exilic. The New York Times called it a watershed moment for the Me Too movement. Last month, Harvey Weinstein was convicted of two felony sex crimes. It was a little over two years after the Me Too movement took off when he was accused of sexual assault and breaking story in the New York Times. In an unusual cultural moment, Christians and non-Christians and conservatives and liberals agree. Our society has a sexual brokenness to it. And the problem is widespread. The CDC reports more than one in three women and nearly one in four men have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact at some point in their lives. That's absolutely heartbreaking. I'm glad that the sexism and sexual harassment that was once tolerated is coming to light, but that's not enough. It's good to bring sexual harassment to justice, but there's a deeper problem, and it can't be solved merely through litigation. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth that's incredibly relevant for our situation today. We sometimes think that our modern society has brought a new era of sexual freedom, expression, and acceptance. Liberals praise it as freedom from oppressive religion. Conservatives lament it. But the ancient city of Corinth was also a very sexualized society. When Paul wrote this letter, he rebuked the church because one of the members had married his father's wife, so probably his stepmom. And the church was actually boasting in this fact. I mean, can you imagine someone today openly boasting in that, let alone a church? Paul was no stranger to the kind of society we live in today. This passage shows us the root problem to our sexual brokenness 
and gives us the solution. And here it is. You have been freed from sin to flee from sin. So let's unpack that. This passage mentions a whole list of things, but I'm just going to focus on sexual immorality because that's what this chapter focuses on. And so first, we have to spend some time on this question. What does Paul mean by sexual immorality? A 2018 Gallup poll found that 69% of Americans think premarital sex is morally acceptable. That same poll found that 43% of Americans think pornography is morally acceptable. 87% of men aged 13 through 24 seek out porn. And 56% of women in that same age range do the same. But as Christians, we have a very different morality. The standard for Christian sexuality comes from the very beginning of the Bible. When God created the first man, Adam, before there was any sin in the world, God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So God created Eve from one of Adam's ribs and brought her to Adam. And when Adam saw her, he said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. And then we read, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This was the first marriage in history and this is the norm for Christian sexuality. Christianity teaches that sex is good and that the pattern is one man and one woman to become one flesh in marriage. So what does Paul mean by sexual immorality? He means any sexuality other than one man and one woman in marriage. Christianity teaches something very different than what our culture believes, but there's something important to remember here. Christianity also teaches that we are to love everyone regardless of what they believe. That's important to remember because Christians haven't always done this in the area of sexual ethics. Sometimes Christians look down on or even persecute those who disagree with them. If that's happened to you, I want to apologize on behalf of the church. And by the church, I don't mean exilic. I mean the worldwide church. I sure hope you haven't been mistreated here. Oppressing those who disagree with us is not Christian. Christianity is about Jesus Christ who suffered and died for those who hated him. We're called to love all our neighbors regardless of what they believe. We're called to even pray for those who persecute us. That must be our mindset when we talk about how Christianity differs from our culture. In the Bible, the pattern is sex within a marriage relationship. That means we only have sex with our spouse. The commitment of marriage provides the context for sexual intimacy. The exclusivity cultivates intimacy, provides trust and safety. And studies confirm this. It's probably not surprising that married couples have far more sex than single people. Sex is best within a marriage relationship. And living together is also best within a marriage relationship. Although 23% of cohabitating adults say they're living together because they want to test the relationship, studies show that cohabitating before marriage increases your odds of divorce. A recent Pew Research study uh, found that married couples also have higher levels of relationship satisfaction, and also higher levels of trust than non-married cohabitating couples. 
Sex within a marriage relationship also means only gratifying our sexual desires in that relationship. It means not seeking gratification in sexting or pornography of any kind. And studies have confirmed the harmful effects of pornography. Porn can increase depression, anxiety, and social problems. It changes the pathways in our brain. The porn industry fuels sex trafficking, and often pornography is sex trafficking. Consumers of violent and nonviolent pornography are more likely to use the words, drugs, or alcohol to coerce others into sex. And listen to this. Using pornography increases aggressive behavior, including having violent fantasies and actually committing violent assaults. This isn't just some Christian statement. This is from peer-reviewed studies. Yet 68% of Gen Z believe pornography is morally acceptable. We're right to condemn sexual abuse, but we can't do so while at the same time saying pornography is okay. The two are not so separated. And let me just say, sexual assault can cause long-lasting physical and emotional harm. If you've been a victim of sexual assault, I want you to know the pastors and I are here for you. You can email us and we can talk or, or connect you with anyone who can provide whatever care that you may need. Studies confirm what the Bible has said for thousands of years. Sexual immorality, by the Bible's definition, is not good for anyone. It's not good for us, and it's not good for society. The creators of Tesla's Model X car built into its operating system some hidden features. For example, if you push autopilot four times in a row, the display turns into Rainbow Road from Mario Kart. If you enter 007, the menu will show you James Bond's submarine. Maybe my favorite is that if you enter Holiday, it plays Wizards of Winter by Trans-Siberian Orchestra, complete with a light show, and the car doors open and dance with the music. But the thing is, we know about these features because the creators told us. The creators know how it works because they are the ones who designed it. God created us, and God created sex. He knows how it's designed to work. Sex was created for one man and one woman to share in the context of marriage. Going outside of that pattern leads to harm. The root problem of the sexual brokenness in our society is what Paul calls sexual immorality. If you want a healthy society, flee sexual immorality. That's the solution. That's the way forward. And as if all this isn't controversial enough, we see this phrase in verse 9. Men who practice homosexuality. Homosexuality is included in this list of sins. Does that mean the Bible should just be dismissed as antiquated and oppressive? What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Anyway, does this passage apply to consensual homosexual relationships today? We know this passage applies to us today because the Bible is incredibly consistent. It was written by many different authors across 12 centuries that spans 
different cultures and places, and yet from the account of the creation of the first man and the first woman to this letter to the church in Corinth at least 2,000 years later, the message is the same. Marriage is between one man and one woman. When we study this passage, we can't just ignore homosexuality. It's mentioned here, and so we shouldn't be afraid to address it. But let's, at the same time, let's put this into perspective. Homosexuality is just one way we go outside of God's design for sex. All these other things I've already mentioned, pornography, sex outside of marriage, are just as outside of God's design. In fact, those things are a lot more relevant for most of us. Whether you're homosexual or heterosexual, we're all sexually broken. A couple years ago, my wife and I went camping in the Adirondacks, beautiful place. And there were certain rules we had to follow. For one, we had to bring a bear canister with us to store all of our food in at night. And if you've ever had to carry a bear canister, you know that they're, they're a bit annoying. They're these big, bulky things that don't fit well into your pack, and they're not light either. And you have to carry this on your back all day long while you hike. We also couldn't make a campfire. And this was especially disappointing because we were really looking forward to having one and thought we'd be able to. These rules seemed a bit irritating. But the thing is, they were both ultimately for our good. They protected us and others from forest fires, from bears. Similarly, the commands in the Bible are not given for our hardship or suffering. They're given for our good. They tell us how we're meant to live. Verse 13 says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Verse 18, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. God's commands here are not hateful. They're deeply loving. His commands are not ultimately self-denying. They're ultimately self, uh, self-fulfilling. They're not life-sucking. They're life-giving. They're not oppressive. They're free. The reason why Christian sexuality is so offensive is because it says God knows what's best for you. And that may be different than what we think is best for ourselves. But the solution to the sexual brokenness in our society is not to create our own standards. The solution is to conform to God's standard. Verse 18 says, flee sexual immorality. Christianity teaches that sex was created for one man and one woman to share in the context of marriage. Anything outside of that, homosexuality, sex before marriage, adultery, pornography, is sexual immorality. And Jesus goes even further. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus says even our thoughts can be sinful. Even apart from intercourse or sexting or pornography, even just our lustful thoughts are equal to the sin of adultery. So where does that leave us? We're all guilty of sexual immorality. Even if we haven't done what Weinstein did, we're still all contributing to the sexual brokenness of our society. 
We may not be found guilty before a jury of our peers, but we all stand condemned before God. This passage makes a very strong statement. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is, the unrighteous will not be a part of God's restored kingdom, the kingdom Jesus will bring to earth when he returns. This is both good and bad news. The Me Too movement seeks to end sexual violence and harassment. We want to live in a world where that no longer exists, a better world than we live in today. Verse 9 is good news because it says that world will exist. It's called the kingdom of God. But this is also bad news because if the sexually immoral cannot inherit this kingdom, then none of us can be a part of it. None of us has kept God's design for sex. You know, in chapter 5 of this letter, Paul tells the church what to do with the man who married his father's wife. He says, verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Christianity says you're either a part of the kingdom of God and destined for the glory of life with God forever, or you're a part of the kingdom of this world and destined for death and eternal suffering. Verse 9 is bad news because it means that we don't deserve to inherit the kingdom of God. We deserve even worse than we have now. Who then can inherit the kingdom of God? Well, the strong language of verses 9 and 10 is matched by the strong language of verse 11. In the original Greek text, it says, But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's very emphatic. If you're a Christian, you are no longer considered a sexually immoral person. The list of sins in verses 9 to 10 is past tense for you. Verse 11 says, such were some of you. You have been freed from those sins in a very real way that is no longer who you are. But how is this possible? The key is from earlier in this letter. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus Christ became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Only Jesus can rightfully inherit the kingdom of God. Only he has lived perfectly. The good news is that if we have faith in God, Jesus becomes our righteousness. He represents us. He died the death that we deserve and his righteousness becomes our own. And so verse 11 says, we were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you stand before God alone, you'll be declared guilty and you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, he stands before God on your behalf and you will be declared righteous, holy, and clean. So notice all the verbs in verse 11 are passive. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the Spirit of our God. This is not something we have done, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. So these passive verbs are good news because it means that you can inherit the kingdom of God. 
It's not about what you have done. It's about what God has done. Just a quick note here. The Bible talks about sanctification in two ways. Sometimes it talks about sanctification as a progress. We gradually become more like God in our character. We become more holy. That's the way theologians usually use this term. But there are other places in the Bible, like here, where sanctification refers to a definitive breach with sin. We're sanctified in that we're set apart. We're made holy when God frees us from the power of sin. And that means if you're struggling with sin, there is hope. If you're discouraged by your sin, I I want you to know that Christ has freed you. He has freed you from the guilt of sin and he has freed you from the power of sin. And listen, I know it doesn't always feel that way. I know it's hard to resist temptation and when we fail, it can be devastating. But when you fail, know that you have been washed, sanctified, and justified. You are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you feel tempted, cry out to God for help, and he will provide a way out. He promises that later in this letter. We still struggle with sin in this life, but God is at work in us, changing our hearts to love and obey him more and more. Because Jesus doesn't just accept us as we are. He does accept us, but he also washes us. He doesn't leave us in sexual immorality. He frees us from sexual immorality. He brings us to a new, better life. Now we can finally see the main point of the passage. Here's the logic. It's two parts. First, you have been freed from sin. Such were some of you, verse 11. And then here's the second part. If you... If we have been freed from these sins, let us not continue in them. Let us not celebrate them. Let us not condone them. Let us not tolerate them in our lives. Let us flee these sins. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. So here's the main point. You are freed from sin to flee from sin. That's the solution to the sexual brokenness in our society. If I went camping during dry season and accidentally started a forest fire, I wouldn't just casually walk away. I'd flee that forest. We've seen recently how destructive a forest fire can become. The latest stats say at least 34 people and thousands of animals were killed by wildfires in Australia. We flee things that are dangerous. Sexual immorality is dangerous. The Bible doesn't say that sex outside of marriage or pornography or lust is, you know, it's fun, but we really shouldn't do it. The Bible says it's dangerous. When there's a forest fire and the authorities tell you to evacuate, you don't just sit back and enjoy a nice cup of coffee. You evacuate. Jesus is crying out to you, letting you know there is a fire. Don't just sit there while the fire grows around you. And certainly don't walk back towards the fire. Run for your life. We are freed to flee, not to remain or return. 
And this is possible because it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It is by the Spirit of our God. On our own, we cannot change, but the power of God is greater than the power of sin. Now, practically, fleeing sexual immorality might mean giving up some of your other freedoms. It might mean maybe not going to that party. Not because you couldn't, but because you know that if you do, you'll be tempted. It might mean establishing boundaries with your girlfriend or boyfriend. It might mean setting up filters in your computer and your phone and finding someone with whom you can be honest with about your struggles. If you're a member here, ask your life group to pray for you and hold you accountable. Personally, I have software on all my devices so that if I ever decided to go to a site I shouldn't, then uh, some of my friends, Pastor Aaron and my wife, would all get an email. I want to stay as far from that temptation as possible. And maybe this isn't something you struggle with on a daily basis. Praise God. What will you do to make sure it stays that way? How will you seek to avoid compromising situations? And what can you do to help others who do struggle with this? How can you pray for them, encourage them, and help them in practical ways? If you're a parent, this might mean having age-appropriate conversations with your kids about sex. How will you flee sexual immorality? And if I'm fleeing a forest fire, it matters where I'm fleeing to. It's no good to me if I flee one section of the fire by heading straight towards another. In the same way, when we are fleeing sin, it matters where we're fleeing to. We have to flee to Christ. If you don't flee to Christ, you're likely just going to trade one sin for another. Premarital sex to, for pornography, lust for self-righteousness. Part of fleeing sexual immorality and fleeing sin is coming to hear the word of God preached on Sunday mornings and spending time praying and meditating on his word. It also means cultivating healthy relationship with friends and if you're married with your spouse. If we want to avoid disease, we eat healthy and exercise. One of the best ways to avoid sexual immorality is by developing godly relationships. They're the diet and exercise that keep us from disease. What can you do this week to grow closer to a Christian friend or to care for your relationship with your spouse? You know, I've walked with many friends through addictions to pornography. Friends who would spend hours a day online. As sad as it is in today's age, it's the norm. I know it can feel like you'll never be free of it. But let me tell you, I have seen God free people from addictions. There were relapses, and it took sometimes years by our friends who are now free and happily married. They're free from that crushing guilt of sin, and they're free from the power of sin. God has freed them, and he can free you. In fact, this passage says that in a very real way, you are already free. Let us now strive to flee from sin. Society is healed and made more just when God frees his people from sexual immorality. And society follows God's design for sex. Fleeing is the way forward. Let's pray.